So today we're in Esther 9, and I know the, the section that we're going to read, you're going to probably get at the end of it and go, okay, like, what is he going to do with this? And so I promise um, there's a reason for these three verses, and we'll see kind of how we're going to land the plane uh, today, all right? So let's stand up in honor of reading God's Word if you're able. If you don't have the passage in a Bible, it's, on your, um, it's in your little handout, and it's on the screen too. So just reading verses 20. Uh, through 23 and I originally had us reading all the way to verse 28 and I say this now so that you can read it and then listen to me Uh, but I decided not to because there's just some stuff in the other parts of the verse that I don't know if I'm going to fully explain today and it's one of those things whereas um, you've only got a a little bit of time and you don't know if you can kind of once you let all the worms out or the beans out like can I get them all back in that can and keep you guys with me so I I decided to kind of cut the reading of the word, just the three verses, and then hopefully as we work through this passage, you'll understand what I'm talking about. If you're clueless, that's okay. So here we go. Verse 20, and I realized last week I was adding an extra vowel on Mordecai, but it's just something I like to do. I didn't do really well in phonetics growing up, but I just do that all the time. I just make up my own names, and I personally like Mordecai. I think that sounds better, so maybe it's a misspelling on their part, and so maybe I'm just sticking to the original Hebrew, amen? (laughs) That's what I'm doing, so, or that's what I'm telling myself at night so I can sleep better, amen? It's like, oh, such an idiot, but that's okay. All right, here we go. Verse 20, Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Xerxes' provinces, both near and far. And he ordered them to celebrate the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar every year. Because during those days, the Jews gained relief from their enemies. And that was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we just do thank you for uh, a a fabulous week that we've had together. It's it's one of those weeks where we as a body can unite together and put on an event. And it does so much in the life of our church. And just so thankful for Emily and the team and the volunteers that made this week possible. And God, we do pray, as we've been praying throughout the week, that the truths of the gospel that we spoke in uh, these children, sung with these children, that those, um, those truths will become a, a reality that will become more and more real in them and that they would continue to give and, and trust their life uh, in the hands of Jesus. And I pray that those things will continue to cultivate in us as adults. We're never too far beyond Uh, being reminded that our salvation is by grace and grace alone and it's not of anything that we can do. And so um, that's just a reminder we need to hear often. So help us, God, as we land the plane here in Esther. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So yeah, I just got basically what we might call a one-point sermon. And so um, I'll kind of do a little intro, kind of tell you where I'm going, and then we'll dive into the text, kind of show you where I see this. And then we'll land with some application. That's, that's where I want to go uh, this morning. So as most of you know, I, I spent almost 20 years in student ministry. So I did four years at a little small church in Ohio. Uh, moved back here to Kentucky, began seminary, and served at a church in Oldham County for 15 years. And so summer times always like are times of me reflecting a little bit on, on student ministry life, especially when you're, we just had a group of students that have come back from camp a little over a week ago. 
uh, just got done doing vacation Bible school, and these are just always like parts of the summer that um, honestly were really exhausting. I mean, I, at the end of a summer, I was very, very tired. And I remember uh, one specific camp that we went to, one student camp, and one of our students, and um, it's cool to see um, years later where he is now. You know what I'm saying? That's been the beauty of being in this area for as long as I have. I'm able to see students that were sophomores, juniors, or whatever, and see them walking with the Lord as 30-year-olds. makes me feel really old, but that does bring a real joy uh, to me. But I remember this one particular student coming to me kind of at the beginning of the week of camp and saying this, Lau? I don't care how great the speaker is. I don't care what you have to say. I am not making any kind of decisions this week. <laughs> I'm not making any commitments. I'm not going forward. I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to have a good time, and I'm going to kind of numb myself to all the other commitment stuff and decisions and things. And so, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what I told him then. I'm sure I did what I normally do now, kind of laughed and tried to encourage uh, him to be sensitive to the Spirit but I, I, I get the reason, and this is the reason why he gave, of why he didn't want to make any decisions or commitments was um, because when he got back home, it doesn't last. You know, a few days later, or even maybe it lasts a week, and that's gone, and everything's kind of back to normal in my life, and nothing really changed, and nothing was sustained. And so, you know, as a student, you don't realize this, but, you know, a big reason is because you can't, you know, bear the kind of shame and guilt that comes as a result of that. So the easiest thing to do is to, like, I'm not going to do anything. You know, I'm going to numb myself uh, this entire uh, week. Now, I share that story with you uh, because sometimes um, we can take the book of Esther and do the same thing that happens with camp. Because the problem with camp, and this is not a critique of camp. I love it. And we did it for 20 years, and we'll do it here in our student ministry, because I do think it has a place for a teenager's life, and I think it has a place for our adult life. But what I would say to it is that youth camp or any kind of event or conference has a way of emphasizing a moment, a decision that's really hard to sustain once that moment is gone. Are you following me? So like a camp a retreat experience, a conference, as a way of emphasizing kind of the event or a moment or a decision that is absolutely impossible to sustain as far as like the, the criticalness of that moment and the emotions that come with that over the course of your life. And so sometimes what we do is we take that idea and we put it into the book of Esther. And here's what I mean. Esther, the book itself, all becomes about the moment, right? We all know the phrase. There's been songs written about it. There's been Bible studies. If you're somewhat familiar with this Christian subculture, if you're not, you're a blessing. Don't ever get involved, right? It's craziness. But, but we do. We have all these kind of songs and Bible studies that are all about this, this phrase, for such a time as this, right? That moment, that event, that decision that Esther had to make that was hugely important in Esther's life, in the book of Esther, and in the people, right? The Jewish people. I mean, I, I'm not trying to downplay that event and that moment, but, but what we sometimes have a tendency to do is that if this is the sum of what it means to be a Christian, that it's all about these crossroads 
And these massive critical moments where you got to make a decision on, you know, who you're going to serve, who you're going to be with, who you're going to line up with, who you're going to follow. If it's only about all those critical decisions and moments, those, those kind of like hyped up emotional experiences, then I don't think we're really giving people a really clear picture of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And I think we're giving them a wrong impression of what the Christian life really looks like. Because yes, those moments are really important, and God uses those in powerful ways, but so is the rest of life. And the irony is this, the book of Esther doesn't end after that big statement for such a time as this, and Esther goes and does her deal. It doesn't end there. The book of Esther doesn't end when Haman is hung and Mordecai is promoted as second command, which I think that might be a good place to end the book. If I'm writing a book, like, yeah, everything works out. That's kind of like a high note, right? It doesn't end there. The book of Esther doesn't even end after uh, all the Jews get victory over their enemies. It doesn't end there also. It ends with them starting this feast. They inaugurate a brand new kind of festival that the, the people of God are going to celebrate every single year. That's how the book of Esther ends. And so what we have a tendency to do with that is just kind of like, blah, 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 let's move on, let's go to the next book, or whatever. Like we never stop and think about, why is that? Why didn't the book of Esther end at chapter 7? Why didn't the book of Esther end once they, you know, got victory over their enemies? Why does it end with an inauguration of a new feast, a new practice in the life of the people of God? Why? Why does it do that? Well, that's what I'm hoping to answer today because I think it's really important. I think it's something that we overlook and we dismiss really quickly, but I think it's really vital um, in a life as a Christian, and I think it's really vital for us to sustain our life as Christians. So, all right, so as a review... Just in case some of you are brand new and you're just rolling in. Uh, here's kind of what's going on here, real brief. So if you go to chapter 7, uh, we see that Haman's plot has been kind of exposed. So Haman came up with this plot to wipe out all the Jews because he hated Mordecai. And so Esther, you know, got the gold scepter, came to King Xerxes and said, Hey, let's have a banquet with you and Haman and me. And then during these banquets, these two banquets, eventually this little plan comes to light. King is upset, mad, and enraged. He has Haman hung on these gallows that he built for Mordecai, which is a whole sermon in and of itself, the whole reversal there. Uh, and then uh, Mordecai is promoted second in command. But the problem is this, is the decree to wipe out the Jews is still in effect. Sometimes we forget that. It's still in effect. You can't, you can't go back and change that. That's kind of how it worked in those days. And so in chapter 8, what you have happening here is that Esther actually risks her life a second time, which sometimes we forget that also. She risks her life a second time because she wants to go to the king again, and she's not been summoned. So she goes to the king, the king extends the gold scepter, she comes in, and she proposes kind of like this, almost like a, um, a counter decree to where she's asking the king to allow the Jews to defend themselves if someone, or if the, if someone goes and attacks them. And so we see this, in chapter 8, verse 11, where it says this, The king's edict 
gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and providential army, uh, provincial army uh, that is hostile to them. And so I I may be reading in between the lines here a little bit. I, I don't think I am. But I think Esther's hope in, in kind of putting together this, this sort of counter decree is that no one would attack the Jews. That, that once this other decree goes out saying, hey, the Jews can defend themselves, then no one will attack them. Well, if you reach chapter 9, that's not what happens. They go ahead and attack the Jews. God gives them great victory, and there's a lot of bloodshed that goes on in chapter 9. And if you read through the book of Esther, sometimes you can get hung up on the kind of violence that's going on in Esther chapter 9 to where sometimes even that chapter has a way of hijacking kind of the whole message of the book. And you're like disturbed by it. And so as, as best I can, because the reality is this, that's a massive topic to try to even deal with in 30 minutes, all right? let alone trying to deal with it in five to kind of help ease your minds a little bit. Here's the best way I can explain what's going on in chapter nine. Number one, remember the Jews did not instigate the violence. They're only defending themselves. That's all they're doing. And even though the decree itself gives them permission to plunder their enemies, basically after they won the war or won the fight, they can go and take all their possessions and enrich themselves. But it says over and over, all throughout chapter 9, that they did not do that. Primarily because they were defending themselves. That's all this edict allowed them to do. They're not instigating the violence. They're just defending their families against people that are attacking them. And we see this in chapter 9, verse 16, where it says this. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. And they killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. So they gained overwhelming victory against their enemies. And just like I said earlier, this is not where the book ends. Nor did it end after Haman was hung. Nor did it end after this big moment for Esther. The book ends with this kind of um, start of a new feast, this new festival. We see that. I just read it a few minutes ago in verses 20 through 23 where it says this. Mordecai recorded these events, the events that all took place over these several days here, and sent letters to all the Jews and all of King Xerxes, both near and far. And he ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year. Why? Because during those days... The Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting and rejoicing and sending of gifts to one another and to the poor. If you skip down a few verses, he goes on and explains this new kind of festival that they're putting in the rhythm of their calendar. Verse 26, for this reason, these days are called Purim from the word Pur because of all the instructions in this letter as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them. The Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city so that these days of Purim, there's the name of the feast, will not lose their significance in the Jewish life and their memory 
will not fade from their descendants. So this feast that they started and began as a result of all the events that took place in Esther was a way of saying we are never going to forget this. Let us never, ever forget what God has done on the behalf of his people. And to do that, we're going to set something in our calendar where rhythmically we are going to set aside these two days to celebrate and remember how God saved us, how God provided for us, how God was faithful to us, and how we are a unique people that are set aside as God's children to remind us of our identity as God's people. And so this is, this is in their calendar, like Christmas is for us, right? This is happening every year where they will celebrate for two days and remember what took place in the book of Esther. Now, on these, these two days, what they, um, what they did at, these ho- at this holiday, they did three things, and one of them is pretty fun. I kind of wish I would have known this. We would have implemented this in, in the reading of the book of Esther when we got to certain things. So they would read through the entire book of Esther during these two days, and while they're reading, they would give the people noisemakers, right? Which, that's kind of fun in, anyways. Can you imagine getting noisemakers as you come in here? And that, that would be a chaos probably, but it'd be kind of funny at the same time. But they would get noisemakers, and every time uh, they heard Mordecai or Esther, they would cheer, right? Isn't that great? Like the little clappers, ah, whatever. I can't even, that's not going, yeah, it goes, clap, 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 whatever. You know, that, that would be kind of fun or a little... Whatever. Uh, And every time uh, that they heard Haman's name, they would boo and hiss, which is great. I, to my shame and to my confession to my boys, one time we were at the dinner table, and they were telling us about one of the things that their teacher did in class that was just, just not very kind. And so I just said, one, two, three, everybody say boo. <laughs> and so they held the table. That wasn't a good thing to do. But in this reading, right, it was, was okay to do. And so that's the first thing that they would do. And then they would eat well. They would feast together, have a great time eating together. And then the third thing they would do is they would give gifts to the poor. And they did this every year, two days out of the year, for a purpose of remembering and celebrating what God had done in them. Now, we are not to celebrate these feasts. We shouldn't celebrate these feasts or festivals. Why? Because the fulfillment of them came in Jesus. And so all these feasts and festivals were pointing forward to Jesus. And so then, therefore, like they, they're done away with because they're all fulfilled completely and fully in Jesus. Now, with that in mind, I still think we need to take a step back and ask ourselves, but what do we learn from this? Like we don't just, yes, we don't celebrate these feasts, but what can we take from them to help us understand something that God is speaking to us as, as human beings that's really important for us in our own life as a Christian? What, what is it that we can take from this? Or, you know, here's the question you should ask yourself, why does the book of Esther end? like this what do I need to learn about them starting this festival to end the book of Esther where I think there's many things we can talk about but I just want to talk about one and here's what I think we need to hear from this and why um, or what we can learn from kind of the start of this feast here at the end of the book even though we're not mandated nor should we celebrate the feast of Purim 
because it's been fulfilled in Jesus. I think it reveals to us the importance and the necessity of formative practices. I think it reveals to us, God is helping us see something about human beings. And there's something about the necessity of formative practices that have a way of shaping us and forming us into who we are. Now, if you've been here for a little bit, you probably are thinking this. Haven't we already talked about this? <laughs> Haven't you hit on this a few weeks ago in Esther? We talked a little bit about it on the Sermon on the Mount. I might remember a sermon, if you guys remember this sermon, you guys are like rock stars, that we did a couple years ago in the book of Colossians. I think you've hit on this before, Lyle. Why are you talking about it again? Well, I'm talking about it again because we're all human beings, and you're just like me, and you forget. Amen? So Peter... I can't remember if it's in 1 Peter or 2 Peter, talks about this idea of, it almost says, like, my job title is the minister of remembering, right? It's like, that's what I'm here to do. I'm writing this letter, so I'm helping you remember things. And so, yes, we have talked about the importance of habits and practices and disciplines, and we will continue to do this. I do think it's an area that I want to lean into as a church over the next 12 to 24 months. And so you'll hear me hit on this a few times over the next couple years because I think it's vitally important. And I get it. Some of you um, realize the difficulty of this. Maybe you've engaged in trying to read Scripture on a daily basis, pray fast, silence and solitude, and, and you hit a wall or it's really, really difficult. Or maybe someone discipled you when you were young and, and you got these practices in your you know tool belt, so to speak, and for you know 10 years or so it went great, but then things got stale, they got boring, they got rote, they got mechanical, it felt legalistic, and every time you read your Bible, you feel like, I don't get anything out of it, so what's the point of doing this? And so in the guise of Christian freedom, I'm just going to do away with all that. And I would say that, this to that. I mean, and I, I get it, man. I've, I've been there. I, I, I hear that argument. I would say this, that um, yes, there are times when we engage in these practices that it feels like nothing is happening. And I would say that's maybe a result of being a part of our culture where what we do is we emphasize the event, the decision, the emotional moment. Like that's, and please hear me, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but that's why some of you roll in here on Sunday mornings, is you want that emotional high. If I can get this high, I can get through the rest of the week. And there are times where Elliot and I feel that kind of pressure that we've got to Make this event amazing because that's what people are coming in wanting. And here's the reality. Ellie and I can't hit a home run every single Sunday. Amen? And I'm not shooting for a home run every single Sunday. I'm shooting for a single. A lot of singles in a baseball game make an impact. Amen? And it's not just the one sermon. It's not just the one gathering. It's the accumulation of gatherings over the course of time that have impact on your life 
And so is a morning consistency or an evening consistency or a lunchtime consistency where you're opening up this book and you're making it a practice of your life to read a psalm, to read a paragraph, whatever it is. It's not about that moment. It's not about, I got my high, right? I felt something in here. <laughs> Guys, you're not. You're not. But over time, reading this, reflecting upon this, God is forming you. He's shaping you. I mean, first, there's a, I mean, gosh, there's so much we can learn from the book of Esther. One is this, is that just because God is hidden doesn't mean he's not at work. God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but that whole book is about what God did behind the scenes. And another thing we can learn from the book of Esther, too, is that, is that we're always, we're always being formed. We're always being shaped. I mean, I say this to uh, couples that I'm in, getting ready to marry. I'm getting ready to marry a couple of them here this fall, and I was talking to one of them a, a couple weeks ago. And I just talked about, like, look, guys, there's no neutral in marriage. You've got to get that. There is no in in marriage. You're either working toward intimacy or you're drifting toward isolation. There's no neutral. There's just not. I mean, you, you may think there's a neutral. You may think, oh, we're just kind of existing. Dah, dah, dah. Whatever. <laughs> you're, not ex- you're, you're sliding all the way back to isolation and creating two, two different lives and separate lives are living in the same home. That's just not, that's not good for marriage, all right? There's no end in marriage. Nor is there no neutral and what you engage in. So I know the mall is outdated. And I get that. Nobody goes to the mall. I went to the Oxford Mall a couple weeks ago. It's like half of it's closed. It's like, holy stinking cow. There's nothing open around here. Like, you guys been there lately? It's like, there's like 20 stores that are closed. Like, what is this? Like a hangout area now? So moving on. You guys are not with me on that one. But when you go to the mall, it's not just something you do. Something being done to you. It's shaping you. It's giving you a vision of the good life. And you need to be, it's not like, well, I don't, shouldn't go to the mall then. No, that's stupid. That's a dumb idea. You need to be aware that that is shaping you. We're foolish to think that we can engage in activities and think they have no shaping, forming, and doing anything to us. They are shaping your loves. They are shaping your values. They are shaping your desires. You're not just going to the mall. (laughs) That activity is doing something to you. It is shaping you. It is forming you. And so guys, look, it is absolutely important for us to hear this, that identifying as one of God's people, as one of God's child, is not just about a decision. It's not just about an event. It's not just about drumming up this emotional experience that I'm always trying to find. No, it's about a way of life. It's a way of being. How do I live life under the reign and rule of Jesus? What does it look like to value what He values? What does it look like to love what He loves? What does it look like for me to get to a place where my reactive response is compassion? How do I get to a place where my reactive response is is mercy? How do I get to a place where my reactive response is 
forgiveness. Not anger, rage, bitterness, I'll get you back, revenge, I mean, on and on and on. How does the operational system in my life begin to change? Well, I'm telling you guys, look, it doesn't happen by just rolling in here on Sunday mornings for a one event where you're wanting to get this emotional high. It doesn't happen when you go to a week-long student camp and, oh my gosh, I'm going to change the world. It doesn't happen when you even do an Emmaus walk. All of those are absolutely important and God uses them in your life. I'm not trying to discredit them. All of those events God used in my life. But I'm here to tell you, it will not change the core of who you are until you begin to live into these formative practices that God has given to us as a gift. If we're not intentionally seeking out ways to be formed more fully into the image of Christ, it will not happen. It won't. In the business world, and I might be butchering this because I don't read a whole lot of business books. I do read some. So, Eddie, if I'm butchering this, you can tell me later. Not tomorrow. Maybe Tuesday. You can tell me. <laughs> but I think the, the verbiage is your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you're getting. So if you're not getting the kind of output that you want, then there's something in your system that is off. That's a business principle. Take that and put it into your own life right now. So if you find yourself stressed out, if you find yourself constantly anxious, you find yourself um, tired all the time, you find yourself living in this low-grade guilt, low-grade depression, you find yourself constantly edgy, irritable, or something just kind of sets you off, if you find yourself restless, find yourself just kind of discontent in your own spirit, in your own soul. And it's not just like, you know, every once in a while, it's like a constant discontent. If you find yourself insecure and feeling like you've always got to perform, then maybe, maybe the results that you're getting in your life, the product that you're seeing that you don't like, is a direct connection to what you're putting in it. That there may be something, a practice that you don't even realize you're doing, but you're doing it daily, you're doing it weekly, and it's shaping and forming you and giving you the product that you don't like. Now, guys, I get it. Look, I, yes, it needs to be nuanced, right? Yeah, sometimes there are seasons where suffering comes, and that's... This is what you got in your life. Sometimes there's seasons when it's just not a dark night of the soul. Man, it's a, it's a dark season, right? And I get that. So that, that, is, that is a given. Sometimes in those seasons, this is what you got, right? And I understand, right? It, I'm not trying to say that if you do this, then you're always going to get that, right? I, I, you know, that's the book of Proverbs. So I get that. You know, right, that, I'm not just talking about that. I'm also kind of weave in Job and Ecclesiastes, right? You just can't read the book of Proverbs and be done. You got to kind of bring in Ecclesiastes and Job to help kind of nuance this a little bit. But at the same time, the book of Proverbs is there and there's a whole lot of wisdom there. There is. 
A gentle answer does usually turn away wrath. If I hang around fools, then guess what? I am going to suffer harm. But if I hang around wise people, I will grow wiser. If I listen to critique and criticism, you know what? I'm going to grow as a human being. There's a lot of good in there. If I do, this is what's going to happen. And I'm not trying to make it that simplistic. I'm just trying to help us see that sometimes we toss these practices off because they become rote or mechanical or feel legalistic. I'm free in Jesus. I don't need to do this. And I'm just going, okay, I I hear you. But there's a reason why God established these feasts and festivals that, they wanted, that he wanted his people to do on a yearly basis because God understands humanity, that it's through your practices that he shapes and forms you. I mean, if I had a, that conversation with that student now, you know, I probably said something like this, but I'm sure I didn't say it in this way. But instead of making a decision not to make any decisions, right, I I don't ever advise anyone never to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And you're going, well, how do we know if it's the Holy Spirit or not? Well, we don't know. So, like, just go with it, right? Maybe it is the Holy Spirit. Maybe it is all emotions. Who knows, right? It may be a little bit of both. But instead of just making a decision, hey, I'm not going to make any commitments, maybe there's something that's being taught there that the other 51 weeks of the year matter also. And that there are practices that we can live into that will help, by God's grace, sustain and keep a commitment that you made during that week. So let me ask you, what are yours? Not in some condemning, guilt-driven way. I'm just... What are yours? What practices do you engage in on a regular basis that reminds you that you're a child of God? That he's your dad. That he's for you. And not only for you, but he's with you. He's living inside of you. Empowering you to live out this life that he has before you. What practices are you engaging in on a regular basis that are reminding you of God's faithfulness to you? And his goodness to you? I mean, one of the things we, we did, and, and it's like one of the, it's always like in retro. You know, it's not like we set out to do this. Like, hey, we got to do this. But we, we did it without even realizing the kind of impact it would have on our lives, honestly. And so when Kay died, which is the little girl that God gave us back in 2004, we had her for five months, uh, we, we kind of established this rhythm in our life to where two times a year we would go to her graveside. And so we would go on her her birthday on May 28th, which we're getting ready to go. We try to go on May 28th, but sometimes life just keeps it from happening. So we're, we're planning on going this week. And we'll go there on the 28th and, and change her flowers on her grave. And then um, we'll go on the day that she died on October 31st and sometime in that season and change the flower, flowers there. And we go there um, to not only be reminded of her life, which that's a big part of it, and be thankful for just the five months that we had her and the kind of impact that she had on our life during that five months. But we also go there and we're reminded of God's faithfulness. That here we are, my wife and I, after 15 years, we've been married for 24, but it's been 15 since Kay died. Like we're still together. 
and we like being together. We really enjoy each other. And that's not something to take for granted. And this is not in any way like, ooh, look how awesome you are. It's not by the grace of God that we're still together. There's been a lot of marriages that have been destroyed after losing a child. It's a lot of stress. But thank God we're reminded every single year, two times a year, of how God has been sustaining and faithful to us. We're also reminded, and, and, and I mean, not really reminded, but it kind of um, makes heaven really real. And I know, like, man, I've grown up in church and believed in heaven, and, but there's something about it when someone you love dearly and you can't wait to see their face that kind of makes it real. And so twice a year, we're reminded of the realness of heaven that th someday, someday, we will spend eternity. And I don't know how this is all going to look, but it'll be better than what it would have been here on earth if she would have lived. And not only is our prayer that that happens in my wife and I, but it's my prayer that it happens with our four boys. And so over these last 15 years, I, I can say, man, the practice, that's, that's what it is, of doing this every year, twice a year, has shaped us in profound ways. And that's what I mean by on the front end. I didn't realize how profound this may be and how shaping and informing this would be when we started doing this. But now I can look back and even see in my own life and how it's doing that. So what about you? I know summers can be really weird. Rhythms get all jacked up, right? If you got school-age kids, they won't go to bed. It's like, gosh, we need a break, right? And I know rhythms get strange. But maybe in the midst of kind of like changes like this, maybe there's a way you can start a new rhythm. you don't read your Bible, man, that's where I would start. And start really small. And don't over-spiritualize it. Just because you don't get anything out of it in day one doesn't mean nothing's happening. You're not looking for the event. You're looking at what's going to be in your life in five years. If you don't book in your days with prayer, start that. Pray five minutes. That's it. God's not got a timer in heaven going, ah, sorry, you didn't get to six. You're out, right? Doesn't count. Didn't hear anything. <laughs> that's, that's so crazy how our minds think like that, but they do, or maybe mine does more than yours. Maybe it's a, um, maybe you really begin to kind of step into silence and solitude. I think that's something that's maybe present for our cultural moment when we live in an age of distractions. And we don't have space to think and process because we can pick up our phones and be instantly entertained. Like, it's not bad to have a phone. It's not sinful. Thank God for that. But it's doing something to you. It's shaping you. It's forming you. So each week when we gather together, we have these practices that we do every week. 
Some may feel kind of strange. The benediction sometimes can feel strange. I'm supposed to raise the right or left hand. I'm supposed to extend out like Hitler or kind of keep it straight up. <laughs> right? I mean, it's all kinds of things that you think of. I know you do. You can usually tell, and I love it when we have guests here. I thank God for you guys, and I know sometimes we do some weird stuff that we don't mean to single you out. But usually you can tell when a guest is here because it's like a halfway. It's like, dude, I don't know if I'm for this. This feels really strange. Maybe I'll just kind of do like this or something like that. And that's, you're, it's good. It's okay to do whatever you want to do there. There's no wall, obviously. Um, but we do do communion every week. That's a practice that we do as a church. And so can that become rote, mechanical? You better believe it will. And it probably has for a lot of us in this room, including me. I mean, I see what happens when I go into my verbiage, right, my little verbiage. Hey, this is how we do communion here. Everybody puts their Bible, puts things up, and, oh, honey, we need to go get the kids. They're probably freaking out. Let's go back and get, you know, and then we kind of run in here and do the deal, you know. And I'm not trying to condemn anybody. I'm just saying that, hey, we get into these these habits, and we don't stop and think about what we're doing. And I don't think the answer is to say, hey, then let's do it monthly or quarterly because we don't want this to become, you know, legalistic or mechanical. Well, I don't think it's the practice's problem. It's our problem, isn't it? And so we have a responsibility as Christ followers to think and reflect upon what we're doing. So every week when we take communion, you're making a statement that I don't live on bread alone. That what sustains my life is not my stomach. What sustains my life physically and spiritually is Jesus. He is the bread of life. And every week, you get to get your mind Recentered on that reality that we forget Monday morning. You get reminded every single week that your sin, not in part, but in full, is paid. All of it. Every single bit. And the freest that you can be as a human being is a human being that is in Christ Jesus. And every single week, through the practice of communion, you get to remind yourself of that reality that we forget every single Monday. You also come and you remind yourself that you know what? It isn't just about Jesus and me. That's Western civilized Christianity. It's just about me and Jesus. Like, dim the lights, let me get alone with Jesus. There's a part in that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But look, that's not how God is putting this together. He's saving a family, a people, not one person. And so every week, you are reminded of the reality that you're a part of this family, and this family is not optional for you. It's a necessity. You're both needy and needed. And so we choose... Not to say this is, like, please hear me, I'm not trying to moralize something, not trying to make something like we're so much higher than anybody else. We choose not to pass a plate with an individual cracker. Because it's not primarily about you and Jesus. 
We don't pass a plate with an individual cracker and an individual cup. No, you line up and you share a common bread. We're all in this together. We're one big family. And we're sharing a common bread and we're sharing a common cup, wine or juice, whichever your conscience permits. Amen, right? Right? And we do that every single week. And by doing that practice, that practice shapes and forms you and helps you kind of die to this disease of individualism that is killing us and helping us realize no matter no matter what goes on in this family bad or good I'm in it because I'm needed here and I'm a needy person I need, need brothers and sisters in Christ to help me in this journey of life as a journey of life with God. Without them, I cannot make it. And every week, you walk forward and you're reminded of that truth. That's the power of what can happen in your life with things Simple as practices. You're not earning more favor with God. You're not getting brownie points. God's not going to bless your day because you spent five minutes in prayer. That's just, that's not how God works. He's going to bless your day because you're his kid, right? You know, like, my boys don't have a blessed day because, like, you know, they came and did something. They're my kid. I'm going to love them and bless them, right? But this is about your heart and values and loves being shaped and changed over time so that you can become the kind of human being you're created to be. Let's pray together. So, Father, we do ask that you would give us the strength by your Spirit to step in and begin to dive into a practice that maybe we've neglected, put down, never started and start. Maybe it's just as simple as reading your Bible. And God, may we have kind of a long view in mind, not short view. That even though we may not get warm, fuzzy feelings after reading the Bible, we know that you're at work. And we see that even in the book of Esther, a book where your name is not even mentioned and you were at work through the entire book. So God help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've kind of done my communion stuff, but just as a reminder, if you're a Christian here, think on one of those three things, or you can think on all three. As you come forward, break a piece of bread off, dip it in wine or juice, whichever the conscience permits. The wine is always marked by wine. But if you're not a Christian, then our encouragement for you is not to take this meal because this meal will do nothing for you. It's, it's bread and water. It's symbolizing something. We want you to take Christ. We want you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Always have couples that are in the back that would love to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian. So church, whenever you're ready to take communion, you can stand up and come forward.